This is a podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. We are going to Western Australia and something special that is happening at Curtin University next year. It's a new training centre. It's a new training centre with a mission to heal. It's a mission to drive an Indigenous-led restoration economy. And the new Healing Country Centre will blend traditional approaches with Western science to help Indigenous businesses heal their land. They've got $5 million to start with and it's one of several that will be going on around Australia but we want to talk to Professor Stephen Van Leeuwen. He is Australia's first Indigenous Chair for Biodiversity and Environmental Science. He's a Noongar man and he is our very special guest and he loves the vast open lands of Western Australia. Professor Stephen Van Leeuwen, thank you very much for your time and a very good morning. Welcome to On Country. Good morning. Why is it important, why is it so important that research is done for Aboriginal people by Aboriginal people? It's our progression to self-determination and making decisions about how our country is managed by us. And, you know, for far too long, and it's not a, a thing that's unique to Australia, it's First Nations people around the world, really. Their other cultures have been making decisions about us often without us and that's just no longer appropriate you know it's not the right way to go in terms of human rights and particularly now that we have you know large parts of Australia coming into the Indigenous estate through native title settlements and determinations it's the appropriate thing to do. We know it's the appropriate thing to do. We know it's the right thing to do. How can we ensure that it does happen, considering that there are a lot of parts of Australia, a lot of areas of Australia still owned by mining companies, by pastoral companies, uh, organisations like that, that they are on your land, as it were, and uh, you want to have a say in that. How can you have a say in land that is owned in our understanding of it now by somebody else, probably with a lot more money and resources than you. Yeah, that's true. Um, Well, so in the case of the miners and some of the big pastoral operations, you know, they want to be seen to be doing the right thing. They're social licensed to operate. Um, Their credentials on the world stage are all important and, you know, we can play off them or play that card. Um, And, you know, those who are genuine about it are putting Indigenous people onto their boards, seeking Indigenous, the advice of Indigenous people in their operations. Uh, they have reconciliation action plans that are more than just a tick-knock ex- exercise. And it's really you know, providing or enabling an Indigenous voice across the way that business is done and the business practices of that organisation or that business. How is that happening? Is that being led by the companies or by the Indigenous people? Both. Um, depending on the company, um, lots of you know, lots of the the, the bigger off, bigger companies, I guess, are doing it because they they know that that's the right thing to do. They want to adhere to um, human rights obligations. They want to be seen to be um, a good actor on the international stage. It's also being driven by Indigenous communities once they've become established and have beca- have the capacity and capabilities to do it, they are sort of flexing their muscles and saying, you know, this is our country, this has been through a process of um, 
litigation and legislation through the Native Title Tribunal. We have been found to be the owners and you need to talk to us about things on our country and decisions that you make for our country or are making for us. And you know, ultimately, the, I guess the end game you know, is self-determination and where it is Indigenous-led. So far, though, have we seen a situation where land that might be mineral-rich, there are not mines on it because that's the decision of the local Indigenous people? Uh, I think you'd have to travel a long way to find that in Australia. Do you think that'll happen in the future? I think there will be more genuine, respectful negotiations about accessing the mineral wealth and activities in that space that deliver better outcomes to community that are not only outcomes that are there for the life of the mine, but are enduring after the completion of the mine and mine closure. That's one of the biggest challenges at the moment for the mining industry is they can set up great um, agreements that are operational during the life of the mine, but when the mine is closed, what happens to those communities? They go backwards pretty quickly because there's no more income, there's no more um, fee-for-service work. So it's providing and looking for alternative revenue streams, employment streams, business opportunities. And that is one of the outputs we intend to deliver through the training centre we've just been funded for by the Australian Research Council, uh, Healing Country, is to demonstrate there are other opportunities to be realised from the restoration of country. So I'll get to that in a moment. I do want to know, you talk about accessing that mineral wealth. What about sharing that mineral wealth? So that, yes, when the mine does close down, that the there are benefits that will be ongoing for the community that is left behind, as it were, once the mine leaves yep. or left in at home. Are we looking at an equitable share of what's under the ground by those that live on the ground, on the country? Yeah, I think you'd find most Indigenous communities, Indigenous land owners and managers across Australia would say no to that at the moment. Um, if we're in Canada, it might be a different case where royalty streams are in the, the tens of percentages. We're in Western Australia, they're in the point percentages in royalty yeah. streams, or in Australia, not just Western Australia. Yeah. Part of that has been driven by you know, the, the, decolon well, the colonisation of the continent and the way you know, in Australia, native title, ownership of country wasn't recognised until really, relatively recently. And so the systems aren't in place to give Indigenous owners the ability to use their rights to get better outcomes. But having said that, as the mob becomes more capable and greater capacity, and you know, we, we get more people coming out as professors, as high degree students who, who can mm -hmm. hold their own and debate these issues and challenge the miners, and it's not only the miners actually, it's government yes. as well, then we will have better outcomes. Although the government has given you $5 million for this new centre, I'll get to that in a moment, the mining companies surely should be providing, and maybe they are, uh, educational opportunities, scholarships, whatever, for the next generation of leaders. Are they doing that? Yes, through this centre, 
we've, we've got um, 30 industry partners who are also involved in it. Uh, half of them are mining companies or companies related to the mining industry and providing scholarships, training opportunities, access to country is very much on their agenda. And at the time we prepared the, the application, you know, we, we were time poor and several companies we couldn't get over the line in the uh, application, but now we uh, have been successful. They're very keen to come on board. So we will build this program and we will seek additional funding from the miners. And, and actually it's not only miners as well, <laughs> there are government agencies and there are other land managers who also want to um, see Indigenous communities working their country and making a genuine living from that yes. and improving the well-being of communities. And that's really important, isn't it? Because if this land is to be dug up, then there needs to be some sort of economic benefit from it to the people who live there. What are we seeing? How has that changed in the last, well, I don't know, 30 years since we've seen Marbo? Well, we, yeah, it has changed. Um, how the extent of that change is still questionable. But, you know, we have Indigenous land use agreements and uh, mine participation agreements in place now right across the nation. Yes, it's questionable about the, the, the benefits they're delivering, and particularly in terms of benefit sharing. Um, but it's a lot better than prior to Marbo, and you know it's a step in the right direction. I suspect over the next 20 to 30 years, there'll be another big step change as more land becomes comes back to Indigenous ownership and people um, deal and negotiate better outcomes for their land. Stephen Van Leeuwen is our guest, Curtin University Indigenous Professor in Biodiversity and Environmental Science. Before we move on to talk a little bit more about that and the new centre that's opening, you can't go past what happened with Rio Tinto and the destruction of the caves and there have been destruction of art as well by other companies. Do you think we'll continue to see that happening or do you think that really was a wake-up call for all these companies involved? Uh, very much a, a wake-up call for the companies and government because at the end of the day it was government who you know, provided the approval for that to happen. You know, Rio Tinto had a really good reputation that has gone backwards in the last decade and culminating in the Duke and Gorge incident. Um, but you know they they want to significantly change their business practices and the way they've been doing business. Um, people like BHP and Fortescue and um, other mining companies, particularly in the Pilbara, you know they know they can't do anything on country without engaging with the mob, and that engagement now has significantly increased, and the expectations from community are significantly higher. For most people, listening to what you're saying, you're talking about an area that they have never been to and probably never will go to. But you love that area, you love that land, you love northern Australia, the deserts there. Tell me what it is about it that you love. The expanse, the vastness, and from my profession, which I call myself a botanical ecologist, is the ability to go out in the field and collect plants in my case that 
no white fella, and uh, no, and you know, I'm a, I'm a Noongar man, so I'm not a white fella. But no, no one in modern science has seen before and described before. And I lived in Karratha for 18 years, built up a great relationship with Pilbara communities and Pilbara mobs, and also the miners, because you can't live in the Pilbara without having that relationship, really. And just about every time I'd go out in the field on a field trip to undertake research, I'd come back with a plant species new to science, and or new to the Pilbara. And that, you know, for in a first world country with the technologies and know-how we apparently have, I just find extraordinary and such excitement. And to me, you know, it's probably like the early explorers going to Antarctica or back in the um, you know, centuries ago, landing in the United States or in Africa. Just the thrill of it, you know, the, just the, the sheer um, remoteness of it, but the opportunity to discover. Do you think that that area should be, and I use the term exploited, not in a bad way, but in fact to describe its use, that there should be more people going there, especially as tourists or perhaps cultivating agriculture there? Do you think that that is right or should it be left pristine as it is? The Pilbara is a rugged place and it's not only rugged in terms of landscapes, but it's also rugged in terms of the climate and weather patterns, you know, so cyclones, high temperatures and long periods of drought make agricultural, typical agricultural pursuits, you know, cereal and cereal growing and even livestock production a challenge. And that is definitely not the way to go, even if it is by irrigated agricultural means, because water, while it, you know, there is a large volume of it sitting in some aquifers up there, it's not there forever. It's not an unlimited resource. So the beauty of it to me is in its wilderness, it's you know, pristine from one perspective, but you've got to also remember that people, Aboriginal people, have been living in that country for 65,000 years or thereabouts and managing it with fire, with the pseudo-domestication of bush tucker, with the harvesting of you know, bush meats, kangaroo, bilbies, whatever they wanted to eat. Um, and that's been going on for a long, long time over numerous generations. So pristine to some extent, but it's not without humans being in that landscape. Of course, I wouldn't suggest that, but it's an area that should remain as it is and that others shouldn't go and see it. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that that would be nice. Mm. But if if reality is, if it wasn't for the iron ore industry in the Pilbara, Australia wouldn't be the country it is today. Now, some people may think that's good and bad, um, but I think we'd be struggling... Indeed. significantly more through this COVID period yes. without the silver iron ore industry than um, <laughs> with it. <laughs> is COVID a problem in the Pilbara? Not at the moment, but if it, if we do get COVID into um, you know, WA, the Pilbara is one area that the WA government and the Kimberley and the deserts, one area that the WA government would not like to see it get into yeah. because of the poor health's and well-being standards of the Indigenous communities yeah. and the lack of medical facilities, actually. Indeed, of course. So federal government has given you $5 million for this Healing Country Centre. Just explain what that is, and I'm sure you'd like more money, but what 
that $5 million will be spent on? And at the end of that time, what would you like to see have happened? So Healing Country is about developing up and proving the restoration economy for Indigenous Australians. Now, we're sitting at Curtin University on Wadjuk Noongar Country. So just practicalities, most of our research will be in the southwest of WA, but we'll also be doing research across Western Australia. At the end of the five years, the outputs from that will hopefully, well, not will hopefully, will be transferable across Australia. The key things that we aim to deliver are um, helping mob grow and restore countries, particularly degraded country, that they have now uh, taken ownership of through the Southwest Native Title Settlement or through organisations like Noongar Land Enterprises, and to, to grow things, plants that they want to, that will deliver enduring benefits to them. So for example, if we do biodiverse planting, so that's plantings that are more than just trees, so that's putting the shrubs in and the orchids and the lilies and so forth into the lands, back into the landscape. And then we know we're going to get more soil carbon locked up, which has a climate change benefit, but that also will bring in a revenue stream as we currently debate the carbon markets. It will also, if you stick beehives on that, will also produce a nice uh, income from honey production. Right. Yeah. And in Western Australia's case, we've got the most pure honey in the world because we don't have any of the viruses and diseases that the um, you know, bees have elsewhere in the world. And so the premium, uh, West Australian honey gets a premium on international markets. Well, well, well. Who decides how this money is spent? Is it you? Is it the centre? Is it the local people? So the centre has a board of governance which is all Indigenous. So no Westerner, Whitefellas, Wadjalas on that um, Board of Governance, so that makes it Indigenous-led. To get our cultural authority, we've got a circle of elders who we'll go to to ensure that we are making decisions in the appropriate way that conform with Indigenous rights and processes. And then we've got three key research areas. One is ecosystem, or, um, eco-health, which is about the health of communities. Um, one is about restoration, which is to do with you know, seed biology and getting plants back and, and getting the right soil conditions and carbon. And then we've got, got one that is to do with the socioeconomics, so the business of restoring country. And each of them has a senior academic leading it. And that academic, if they're not Indigenous, is partnered with an Indigenous person to ensure that you know this is an Indigenous-led program and it's doing what the Indigenous stakeholders, Indigenous research users require, not so much what the academic researcher needs. I think you said that this might be one of eight centres, is that right? Yes, it was one of eight centres funded in this round from the Australian Research Council. And are all the others doing the same thing and where are they? Uh, um, this is the only one in Western Australia, all the others are over in the eastern side of the continent. And look, I'm not across their governance right. and all the projects that they're doing. 
Okay. So five years' time, what do you want to be able to look back at and think, yep, we've achieved this? Um, five years' time, I'd like to um, be able to walk out of my office and walk past a cohort of young uh, Indigenous students who are doing their undergraduate degree in restoration science. I'd like to also see a couple of them putting their hand up to wanting to do PhDs or um, go on to higher educational studies. I'd also like to be able to have a portfolio of proven business cases that we can give to a community and say, if you want to make an income from restoring country that's focused on honey production, here's your business case. Add in where appropriate your your credentials, your name, and go to Indigenous Business Australia or the Commonwealth Bank or Indigenous Land and Sea Corp and tell them this is what you want to do and this business case has been tested by Curtin University hmm. who have accredited hmm. and give us our dollars, please. <laughs> well, we'd all like that, wouldn't we? Uh, but yeah. how, how important is it, do you think, also that the Curtin University has the overarching control or oversight of this? Yeah, well, Curtin of the lead, we've got um, other universities involved, so Murdoch University and the University of Western Australia, NWA, are, are, are partners, and they're you know, people, uh, academics and researchers and students from those institutions are also involved. So it's not all about Curtin, but Curtin uh, are very keen, are strong on promoting Indigenous engagement and pathways at the moment and that's part of the reason why I'm at Curtin, to build the, the pathways for students to come into Curtin and get higher education, which is something that they were asking me when I was working elsewhere, that we can do the, all this training in vocational training, but we can't make the step into university. Can you help us develop pathways in? And the restoration pathway is one of them. It sounds like a great idea, Professor. Thank you so much for telling us about it. And maybe we will catch up with you in five years' time and see how it goes. Thank you, and thanks for the interest. And that was Noongar man, Professor Stephen Van Leeuwen, who will be heading up the new Healing Country Centre at Curtin University, which will open next year. And he is Australia's first chair for biodiversity and environmental science and was our very special guest on Country this morning. Overnights with Rod Quinn on ABC Radio.